Hello, everyone, and welcome to Live Through Jesus with Courtney Gilmore. Jacob dies and is buried in the promised land. Then the brothers begin to worry about their relationship with Joseph. Death, forgiveness, and wrapping up Jacob and Joseph's lives. This is the last chapter of Genesis, chapter 50, lesson 12 of the Sons of Israel study. Now, just as a quick side note, I'll be reading all the scripture references for you, so you're free to just sit back, listen, and absorb, or you can grab your Bible and read along. Most of the time, I'll be reading from the New King James Version, but if I switch, I'll let you know. At the beginning of each episode, I'll introduce the title, so if you want the entire study in writing, you can go to livethroughjesus.com and buy it for under $5. Each one will cover two to three months' worth of episodes, and once you buy, then it'll be immediately available for download. In addition to a little extra studying, it also allows you the benefit of some charts and keyword definitions, but it isn't necessary. Okay, so let's get started. On the last episode, Joseph continued as the governor of Egypt, and then Jacob told each one of his sons and two of his grandsons what their future would hold. So if you happen to miss that episode, you might want to go back so that you can see a glimpse into the future of the nation of Israel. This week, we pick up in Genesis 49, verse 29, to finish up the rest of the book of Genesis. So let's go ahead and start reading. Then he charged them and said to them, this is Jacob, Jacob charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people, bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into his bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. So if you remember, after Sarah died, Abraham went to the Hittites and asked them if he could buy a cave to bury Sarah in. And they gladly agreed to sell him the cave and also the field surrounding it, which would just make it where he wasn't having to go on someone else's land for his family burial plot. So Abraham buried Sarah there. And then after Abraham died, Isaac and Ishmael buried him there. And then we don't really know when Rebecca died. The last thing that we heard from her was when she and Jacob conspired against Esau and Isaac to take the blessing that was meant for Esau. And after that happened, Rebecca was so worried about Jacob that she sent him away to find a wife so that Esau wouldn't kill him. That's the last we know of her. And then Jacob spent 21 years in another land. And it doesn't talk about him seeing her again whenever he comes back. And it does talk about him seeing Isaac. So my assumption is that she died sometime while he was living with his father-in-law Laban. But we don't know that for sure. What we do find out here is that she was buried in the same burial plot as Abraham and Sarah. 
And then we do find out that when Isaac dies, Esau and Jacob come together and bury him there. Now, the only one left that's buried there so far is Leah, and we also never hear about her death. So we don't know when that was, but it doesn't speak of her coming to Egypt with them. It also doesn't speak about them having to leave Egypt to go and bury her. So most likely, if she is buried in the same place, then she died before they came to Egypt. So this means that Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebekah, and Leah were all buried there in this cave that Abraham bought from the sons of Heth the Hittite. Rachel is the only one of the family that has passed away that did not get to be buried there. And the reason for that is because she died on their way to Bethlehem. And so they buried her there where she died. And coincidentally, Leah, who was the unloved wife, gets to spend eternity resting by her husband. Basically, she didn't have him in life, really, but she had him in death. So that's just a little bit of irony. Now Jacob has died and he's made his son's promise to take him back to this place and bury him there also. So let's go ahead and read and see if they do that. This is chapter 50, verse 1. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for him, for such are the days required for those who are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him seventy days. Now when the days of mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying. In my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and I will come back. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the house of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's house. Only their little ones, their flocks, and their herds they left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. Then they came to the threshing floor of a tod, which is beyond the Jordan, and they mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation. He observed seven days of mourning for his father. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of a tod, they said, This is deep mourning of the Egyptians. Therefore it was called Abel Mizraim, which means mourning of Egypt which is a place beyond the Jordan. So his sons did for him just as he had commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite as property for a burial place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers and all who went up with him to bury his father. So they embalmed Jacob's body to preserve it for the long trip. And Pharaoh agreed for Joseph to go and bury his father back in Hebron. And so they set out with their family and also many other Egyptians that had apparently grown to love Jacob as well. And after they crossed over the Jordan River into the Promised Land, they stopped in a town called Atad to mourn for their father. 
Now they're in the promised land, the place that no one has been back to in 17 years. And so they are having a memorial service for their father there. And they stay there seven days. And it says there was such a deep mourning that all the Canaanites around noticed it. And they called this place the morning of Egypt. And then after the seven days were over, they traveled on to Hebron and buried Jacob there and then headed back to Egypt. So let's read on beginning in verse 15 and see what happens to the family after Jacob has passed away. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, Perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us all for the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespasses of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespasses of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So the brothers got panicked after Jacob was no longer around and thought maybe now that their dad wasn't there to stop him or to be displeased, Joseph might take revenge on them. But they couldn't go to him directly. They were too afraid. And so they sent their messengers and told Joseph that their father had asked before he died for Joseph to forgive them for the things that they did to him. And then they followed the messengers and went to Joseph himself and fell down in front of him and asked him to forgive them and told them that they were indebted to him, basically. Now, why they would lie to him and say that Jacob said this when he didn't is probably just because they felt like his words would carry more weight with Joseph than theirs did. Now, I do just want to take note for a second that if the father was able to ask for this, then it must mean that Jacob knew what his sons had done to Joseph. And so if you remember whenever they first went back to tell Jacob that Joseph was alive, we discussed how much information did they give to their dad. And we still aren't certain exactly what they said to him initially, but we know that at some point he knew the whole story because they wouldn't be able to use him to ask Joseph to forgive them if everybody didn't know that he knew the whole story. Now, providing that they really didn't handle this apology in the greatest way, it makes you wonder if they're really repentant or if they're just afraid. And I just want to ask you, should that matter? Should it matter if they're genuine in their apology and truly repentant or if they are just saying it out of fear? Should that matter to us? When we consider forgiving other people, does it matter whether they're actually sorry or not? That's the question. No matter what your personal either desire is to do or your personal thought of what we should do, What I want to do is look at what the Bible says about forgiveness and see if God asks us to forgive others, even if they are not sorry. Because it seems that if we didn't have to forgive someone unless they were sorry, we would need to make that determination. Or are we just supposed to forgive them no matter what? 
Let's look at some verses. The first one is found in Matthew 6, 14 and 15. It says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So it doesn't talk about them being sorry one way or the other right here. It just says that we are supposed to forgive other people. But it compares our forgiveness of others to God's forgiveness of us. It's not really about us, and it's definitely not about the other person. Our forgiveness, the way we treat others, actually affects our relationship with God. So if we believe that God is forgiving us of our sins, then we need to do what he does for us towards other people because we're supposed to be imitators of him, right? Let's look at this a little bit deeper in Matthew 18, beginning in verse 21. We'll go to verse 35. The first couple of verses is a very popular set of verses, gives us an instruction. So listen to this. Then Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. So we've heard that before, right? That we're supposed to forgive people basically as many times as is needed. Because he's not actually saying that we need to forgive them that exact amount of times. It would be like if you came up to me and asked me, you know, Should I forgive them a hundred times? And I'm like, no, like a hundred times more than a hundred. You know, it's just basically saying as many times as you would need to do it. And so this is a pretty popular verse. We know that we are supposed to forgive people, but listen to why. This helps so much understanding and seeing it being put into practice or not being put into practice helps so much more to me than just having a command. Because I can say, yeah, I know I'm supposed to, but... But when you hear this account, it makes it real difficult to not just say, okay, yes, I will forgive people. So listen to the rest of this. This is beginning in verse 23. Now, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay... His master commanded that he be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant, therefore, fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave him his debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid his hands on him and took him by the throat and said, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all I owe. But he would not, and he instead went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I have pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly father also will do to you, each of you from his heart, does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Now that puts a different light on it, doesn't it? 
What Jesus is telling them is that there was a man that owed the king a lot of money. And the king wanted him to be sold until he had worked off his debt. But whenever the servant begged the king and told him that he would pay him, the king felt sorry for him and he forgave the debt. But as soon as that servant had his own debt forgiven, he went to collect a debt from one of his servants of a lesser amount. And when that servant did exactly the same thing as he did and asked for patience and time in order to pay the debt back, he would not allow it. And of course, whenever the king found this out, he was outraged. And so he took back his pity on this servant and turned him over the torturers until he paid his debt. But then at the end, it says, so is the kingdom of heaven. And that changes everything, right? Because, you know, Peter's just asking Jesus, he says, should I forgive him like up to seven times? And Jesus is like, yeah, seven is nothing. Just as the king says of this man that he was supposed to forgive, he said, what you had to forgive that man was nothing in comparison to what I forgave in you. And yet you couldn't even do it. And that's the thing that God is saying to us. He's saying seven times is nothing. You need to forgive them as many times as it takes because that's what I do for you. And not only do I forgive you every single time that you mess up, but I also forgive a debt that you cannot pay. We are not capable of paying for our sins. We're just not. Jesus is the only one that can do that. Because he's the one that paid the price for our sins so that we do not have to. He canceled our debt. We don't have the ability to cancel a debt that huge. And so God is saying, if I can cancel a debt that huge from you, and I can do it so many times, as many times as is needed for every single person on the earth, I'm pretty sure you can forgive your brother as many times as he needs forgiveness. That's what I require of you because it's really an insult to expect otherwise. When God does all these things for us, it's insulting that we would not want to do the same thing for other people or even close to it. So God tells us to be forgiving because he is forgiving and we're supposed to be his imitators. Now, let's read one more verse on this subject. This is found in Luke 17, 3 and 4. And it says, take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day he returns to you and says, repent, then you shall forgive him. So it first says that if someone wrongs us, we're supposed to go directly to them and say, we feel like you've wronged us in some way. And if that person apologizes, we have to accept their apology and forgive them. And if they apologize seven more times in the same day, then we should forgive them every single time. So since this is talking about when they give an apology, you forgive them. Does this verse negate the fact that the other two didn't really seem contingent upon that fact? The first one didn't even mention it. And the second one did say that the servants begged for mercy But it doesn't specifically say, if they apologize, then you have to forgive them like this one does. And so does that mean if someone doesn't apologize, if they don't feel bad about it, then we don't have to forgive them? Or does that just mean that Jesus is talking to a separate group of people there? 
In the first section, he was trying to explain forgiveness of the Father to the people and how we should react towards other people whenever they hurt us. But this specifically, he's trying to talk to the people that are being directly told by that person that they apologize. So if they apologize, you need to accept their apology. If they don't apologize, you should also forgive them. And the reason for that is for our own. Our rules are always for our own good. Because when we are angry with someone, it eats away at us. And so God does not want that anger and bitterness to build up within us. And so he asks us to forgive. Now, listen to what Joseph says whenever they say, please forgive us, basically. He says, don't be afraid, for am I in the place of God? So Joseph here says, I don't have the authority to condemn you, basically. That's God's position. And the reason he's saying this is because he doesn't know the people's hearts. He may think that they either are or are not sorry, but he doesn't know. Everybody apologizes in a different way, right? I might, you know, just cry and feel horrible and say, I'm sorry. Or I might just be a little too prideful to just beg for your forgiveness. But could I say that a person isn't sorry because they don't act in the same way as me? Because they don't cry and feel horrible if that's something that I do? No, we can't say that because we just don't know. Let me read you a couple of verses about that. The first one is found in Psalm forty-four twenty-one, and it says, Would not God search this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. So this verse tells us that God searches our hearts and he knows their secrets. He knows what we're thinking. He knows how we're feeling. Other people do not. Let's take a look at Jeremiah seventeen nine and 10. The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. So this verse also says, no one can understand the heart. Only God searches the heart and tests the minds and knows what we are thinking and feeling. And that is why he can give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings, because he knows our intents. And so that's why Joseph said, am I in the place of God? Because he's like, I don't know your intentions. I may have an idea, but I can't be certain. So I can't punish you based off of what I believe your intentions are, because I just don't know them. And that's why we leave it up to God, right? God is the one that gets to punish other people for their sins because we don't know what the intent of their heart is. God is the one that gets to punish because he knows the intents of people's hearts and we just do not. So listen to Romans chapter 12. I'm going to begin reading in verse 9. And this first part is just telling us how to treat people, not necessarily whenever they've done something wrong to us, but just in general. And then towards the end, we'll get to how we treat them whenever they've hurt us and how it should be left up to God. So listen to these verses. This will be Romans 12, 9 through 21. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit 
serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those that persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Now this is the key, the rest of this right here. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will reap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So Joseph seems to exhibit the qualities that are in this verse because he just seems to want to move past everything and get along with his family. Following that he doesn't have authority to condemn them, he says, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. And so he knew that earlier their intentions were not good, but he doesn't know their intentions now. And he does know that God had good intentions towards him. And that's really all that matters to him. He just wants to move on and go forward. The Lord's plan was good for an entire nation and the salvation of their family. And now God's plan has been carried out. He has saved the people from the famine. And so what does the rest of any of this even matter? What's the point in focusing on all of that at this point? Joseph is trying to look at the bigger picture. And the bigger picture says, this is good. It doesn't really matter what your intentions were. God meant this for good. How much happier could we be if we could just focus on God instead of people? Right? I mean, God is perfect and great and has every possible wonderful quality that you could ever imagine. And people are not like that. They just aren't. And so wouldn't it be nice if we could just place our focus on him, on the good Savior that loves us and is always going to treat us right, as opposed to focusing on other people that don't always treat us right? How much more peace could we experience if we would just place our trust in him since he's perfect, instead of placing our trust in flawed, sinful people? including ourselves, right? Because we can't trust others, but we also can't trust ourselves because we are not good all of the time. But God is all the time. So if we could just put our focus on him and be like, you know what? He has a plan. He has a purpose for this and just move on and not dwell on the bad things that other people have done for us. How much happier would we be? Listen to 2 Samuel 21, 31 through 34. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. For who is God except the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? God is my strength and power, and he makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and sets me on high places. So we just have to trust him knowing that he has a plan and that his ways are better than ours. And that he's going to make our way perfect. You know, that's really all we can do. And, you know, Joseph could have just forgiven them and gone on his way. But instead, he continued to try to ease their minds and make them feel better. 
and he promised to take care of them, right? Says that at the very end of that passage we just read. He said, therefore, don't be afraid. I'll provide for you. And then he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. It was just so much more than they deserved and so much more than they had done for him, right? But isn't that how God is with us? Because of his mercy and his grace, we receive forgiveness when we do not deserve it, when it's so much more than what we deserve, all just because of his mercy and grace, not because of anything that we do, actually in spite of all the things that we do. That's pretty awesome, huh? In spite of the things that Joseph's brothers did, he forgave them. And not only that, but promised to take care of them and tried to comfort them. That's pretty impressive. Listen to 1 Peter 2 verses 23 through 25. It says, when he, Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So it says even Jesus did not get vengeance on the people that were doing him harm, but instead he died for our sins so that we might could live in righteousness, so that our relationship with God could be healed. So if Jesus is willing to do all of that for us, then the least we can do is forgive other people whenever they've done something against us. And also, here's the thing. Hurting other people doesn't do any good. It would not have helped Joseph to be mean to his brothers. He would have just been angry and focusing on the wrong things. They would have been upset. And instead, now he can move on and just enjoy his family. Enjoy the family that he had missed out on. There's just no reason to make them miserable when he can just enjoy his family. So I hope that encourages you to forgive other people. It does mean when I think of all the things that God has done for me, it makes it really hard to logically say, yeah, but I don't forgive this person. Makes it really hard. And when you see Joseph act this out, knowing that he has every reason in the world and all authority given to him by all powers of this earth to punish his brothers and doesn't, it makes it real hard for me to say, I don't care. I'm going to punish you. You know, that just makes it really hard. Okay, let's finish the rest of this chapter, beginning in verse 22. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household, and he lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him and put him in a coffin in Egypt. So it sounds like him and his brothers lived together several more years. And then whenever it came time for Joseph to die, he encouraged his brothers and reminded them of the promise that God had given to their father and their grandfather and their great grandfather. And he said, you know, don't worry because God will fulfill his promise. Look what he's already done. 
Look how he already preserved our people, keeping them from famine and allowing you to be in this rich land to grow just as he said you would into a nation of great multitude. And so he will certainly fulfill the promise that he told our fathers of bringing you out of Egypt one day and into the land that he's promised to them. And then he says, when that happens, I don't want to be buried here either. Just like our dad didn't want to be buried here, I don't either. I want you to take my bones back with you and bury them in the land that God promised our fathers. So that wraps up the whole book of Genesis and the lives of all of the first Israelites. So we had the story of Abraham and how God asked him to step out in faith and told him that he would give this land to his descendants. And then we have watched until the whole tribe of Israel was born. And we'll pick up next week in the book of Exodus after all of these first Israelites have passed away and see what happens to the nation when all of these guys are gone. So make sure that you subscribe so that you don't miss that episode. Leave me a five-star review. Leave me comments wherever you're listening. You can also email me at Courtney at LiveThroughJesus.com. And then just join me next week for the beginning of Exodus. Thanks and have a good day.